Manchester. Oh, Manchester. Man, Manchester <laughs> by the sea with the Lucas and Zach podcast. That was yeah, my right, favorite folks. song ever as a kid. I listened to that all the time when I was a child. The Manchester by the Sea theme song. See, I, I'm pretty sure that your favorite song as a child was We're Running with the Wolves Tonight, even though it was not made <laughs> in 20 years after your childhood was over. For the intro, should I have actually just done the like choral singing that's in Manchester by the Sea scores go, oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's great though. I mean, it's Have you great. listened to the soundtrack as, as listening? It's great background. It's great reading nope. music. But after watching it, I really kind of want to because I kind of yeah. loved the atmosphere it creates. This very like solitary yeah. Massachusetts coast town atmosphere. It's really great. Um, if you haven't figured out what, rated. oh, I think it's great. I think it's legitimately yeah. amazing, and we can talk about it when we get there. But I think there's an argument it could have been Oscar nominated, and I wouldn't have had a problem with that. Um. Yes, folks, we're continuing uh, Lucas Movies We Love, Lucas and Zach Movies. Um, we talked about It's a Wonderful Life. We're talking about a little bit of a sadder film, but also a film that I think we both think um, is quite funny in moments because the truth of life is that within tragedy and loss also comes humanity, and humanity features humor. And um, a movie that is any one of those is not 100% an accurate representation of the human spirit. Um, so we're here to talk Manchester by the Sea, Kenny Lonergan's wonderful 2016 film. But before we do that, let's jump into the last Letterbox movie and spill our guts about what we've been watching. What have you been watching, Zach, for? Um, so I watched this documentary called Young at Heart. Um, we've talked about this off camera a little bit because you have somewhat of a personal connection to a movie you've never seen. Um, <laughs> yep. But this is something I saw in theaters in 2007. Um those rare documentaries you get to see in theaters and it really struck me and uh, I recently on a different show on the other sucks you know top 100 had this as my my number 100 which is was way too low because I rewatched it for the first well, it's, time it's I was an, giving an it enemy show of ours yes an enemy show of us um I only <laughs> went um to, to try and tear it down from the inside um uh, <laughs> and I gave you the benefit of the doubt to put it at my top one or my number 100. And that was too low because that movie, one, it's delightful. Delightful shit. It is a documentary of an um, elderly choir, like, I think like 70 plus, um, so a lot of 80, 80 year olds in this singing rock and roll songs um, from you know different generations from the 60s to um, the most modern is like Cold Place Fix You. Um, and then they do like Sonic Youth, they get weird with it. They do some more mainstream ones. They do um, like I Feel Good. Um, so a, a broad range of songs, but you're still watching it before by 80-year-olds. And they do this great montage of like, what do you like to listen to? And it's all like opera, classical. And here's some of their takes on, the, on these songs. It's real funny, but they do it because, uh, you know, they find a purpose in it and entertain others. And, and, you know, they tour the world, really. They go to Europe um, with this group. And so watching the passion that they have for this project is um inspiring the energy that it com comes out from but there's also you know it deals with life in a way that a movie about an hourly community would you know there is tragic passings there is people dealing with health issues and and um everyone else is kind of witnessing this you know as friends being said but also within themselves you know knowing that you know that time comes for everybody and it's heartbreaking and it ends with a climactic song that 
you know, pulls those themes together and sung by um, this guy who, you know, was not part of the band anymore because his health kind of decreased too much. He was brought him back for the special event singing Fix You. He has a older Johnny Cash kind of voice, that tonality that just worked perfectly in a song. And it's a song that I think you easily could think is super cheesy. But the um, the texture of his voice mixed with the, um, you know, the moment in the, the context that's being sung in is, is real heartbreaking. I just, I, I finished the movie right before this, um, un, uh, unfortunately, in the restroom. And I'm in the, in the restroom, just like bawling my eyes out. Um, very embarrassingly in the restroom. I had to tell my wife immediately. I just cried. And she's like, where were you? I was like, in the restroom. Uh but it's like not even like light tears. It's like full and bawling, which it doesn't happen to be that much. But this movie, I think uh, it's probably the third or fourth time I've seen it. And it, it has hit me like all the time. Unfortunately, it's really hard to find. Not really hard to find. Like you just can't buy a DVD of it really. Um, but you can rent it for $4 on Amazon. Um, so go for it. Yeah. So the connection that Zach pointed out, which is that uh, the Young and Horror Chorus, the, the subject of this film, is uh, rehearses in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is relatively close to the area I've lived. It's a place I've been many times. I'm pretty sure I may have seen them perform at least once. I don't have a specific recollection of this, but they are like a known quantity in the area where I live. Um, yeah. I am very jealous. That means you're like the closest to becoming part of the band. I just feel like, <laughs> do I move to Massachusetts when I'm 70 just for the chance to partake in this band that would be 50 years into its run by then? I mean, oh. you're welcome in Massachusetts. That's all I would say. The people of Massachusetts will welcome Zach Ford at any time he chooses to move here. Sounds good. Hey, you got my very, very like 1% chance for a little bit there. <laughs> <laughs> um, the last Letterboxd movie I watched was Moana. I rewatched Moana uh, for another Heard podcast. It? Yeah, that's surprisingly somewhat popular film. <laughs> <laughs> the 2016 uh, uh, Disney animated film, um, which is focused on like Pacific Islander Polynesian culture, um, and also is kind of a, one of the one of it's not the first, but it's one of the bigger ones where they really jumped into computer animation and were like, we're going to really take this to the extreme. We're going to have giant rock monsters and big waves and ships. Like they're they're really taking fully advantage of the fact that they don't have to hand draw the stuff anymore. Um, and it's some really good songs. Um, it continues a trend that I think both Zach and I believe, which is that um, Lin-Manuel Miranda should create, should write stuff for other people to sing because it's better when he's not singing his stuff. Because, like, uh, he's a talented screen, he's clearly a talented screenwriter, a talented composer. He writes good songs. I'm going to be honest. He's a Broadway-level performer who has a legitimately bad singing voice. Like, he's vocally is weak. It's kind of it's interesting not like, a Broadway level performer at all. He's someone whose creative side has got him opportunities. I don't think his natural talent on stage would have gotten him. Oh, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying is like he is someone who has yeah. achieved a level on Broadway that he has yeah. put up in a class of people that vocally he is not close to being on the level of the people you would put in the class with him. Um, but Moana's really good. It's got really fun songs. Um, Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, and he awesome. wrote the songs. They're great songs. Great songs. And even the Dwayne Johnson has a really good song. song. Yeah, he got us. Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson. Musically. 
No, Dwayne Johnson is great in this movie. I mean, I would never have if you told me. I mean, like, this is obviously not the first time I watched this, but if you told me that you were putting Dwayne Johnson in an animated movie, my first thought would have been, "Oh, this is the generic. We're going to put a celebrity with a known voice in a movie, and it'll be kind of lame because it's just their voice in a character, and it's not very interesting." First off, plays a character. Secondly, the character's awesome. Has an amazingly cool design. Has all these awesome tattoos that move. I love them. The Maui design is so cool. It's one of the coolest things I think I've seen in an anime movie in a really time. It's just really fun. Like the fact that he has tattoos that are literal stories. That's just a really cool effect. And then Dwayne Johnson is great in it. Um, I'm gonna. I'm completely blanking your name, and I probably would butcher saying it, but um, the young woman who who plays Moana is like amazing and like really good in the film um everyone around her is really good you're looking up um i guess i could yeah, do that i ali Kravaha. that's my best my best get Oli... you could look at the pronunciation sir yeah we could we could uh, do that um but she, she I... if she didn't good. They, they Disney blew it putting her on the Little Mermaid live because she really could have been a great um Ariel. Maybe that's too close to Moana and she can't play two princesses, but it's a live action princess. But I think she would have been perfect. She fucking crushed part of your world on the live TV version of Little Mermaid. That she oh, I'm sure. movie. Yeah, I mean, has she, besides she did the Little Mermaid live, has she done anything since then that you would recognize? Yes. I thought she had something while. recently or soon in the works. Something called All Together Now? Fred Armstrong. Oh, Brett Haley. Yeah, that's probably what I know because Brett Haley, he does like a lot of great movies that 50 year olds love. Um, the Hero, which is like such a Lucas movie, because <laughs> uh, it's like Sam Elliott as this aging actor, which just seems like a Lucas thing. Um, and hard I never saw loud was kind of a small little I saw them. You no know, favorite. Yeah. So so it's a it's a real director. I think it was a Netflix movie if it's came out yet. It, it couldn't have came out yet. But it's, it's coming it's out in August. Okay. August. Yeah, it looks like she's playing the lead. Or close to it. I think she has a future ahead of her, hopefully. You are right though. I just it is kind of and it sucks that they that sort of wasted her on like a live version of one of these musicals. Because um, you're right, she probably would be really good. Yeah, playing that character. But there's other opportunity. There's other non-Disney musicals. I'm sure she can be a perfect fit for as well. Um, I, I mean, I wonder if she has any interest in the actual Broadway stage, or that you know she can go for as well. It'd be interesting to see where she goes. Yeah, she's clearly really talented, and I'm, honestly, it's kind of interesting that we haven't seen. Um, She's Her really blow-up. young. She, she is really she was young. like she was yes less than sixteen when she taped Moana. Yeah, she's probably the movie came out. So she was like fifteen yeah. then. Yeah, she was pretty young. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, even I guess even in in, in the context of that, like it, it is a little bit surprising she has not popped this more than she has because she was clearly she got a lot of praise for that. Um, you never know yeah. for the youth performers how much they're trying to devote their time to it too, and also devote their time to growing up, which is probably the smarter way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think the good news is that if you're if you're a fan of hers, she certainly has not damaged her stock in any yeah. way so far. Um, in some ways, actually, being the person like basically, if you look at her credits, she has four film credits, 
three of them are playing Moana in yeah. the movie a, a short, and then Ralph breaks the internet. Um, so but like, I think she's also, clearly going to be this character. How far a goal has kind but, of broken in as like a classic Disney song at this point, one of the you know best I one songs. So she'll forever has some sort of legacy for singing that song. That will help you know carry her for a little bit. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if they do a second Moana, or I think there was an announcement of a TV show. I don't remember if she was specifically involved in that or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a really fun Disney animated movie. Um, it's nice to see. There's definitely, you know, Disney is like I've, like basically any large company that produces a lot of stuff. They're going to go through peaks and valleys. Um, I think I just Moana. I just remember when it came out in 2016 was like a movie that really I think piqued a lot of people's interest because um, it was just so different from everything they've done before, but also just like looked really good and was coming from you know people that had a trusted pedigree and then people believed were likely to produce something of high quality. So there's not a lot of information about this. I don't know how far in pre-production this actually is, but it shows that she has casted in the movie adaptation of Spring Awakening, which was a huge Broadway hit. Yeah, so that, that was. Um, She's the only person any... listed on the cast at this point, and there is no director, just the writers and her. So whether this will come to fruition, who knows? That's I'm always skeptical anytime you see something like that. I like, well, yeah. if you look at, if you go and look at it, it says the production is beginning spring of 2022. This thing hasn't been updated since 2019. It's probably not a good sign that this is actually a thing. But it, if it did happen, it would be a great opportunity for breaking out for her. That seems like a good project. Do you think that she should stay in like in like the realm of musicals? Do you think that like I mean, obviously this is a skill that she has. Like she's clearly vocally talented. Yeah. But like, do you think that? you want to just be the musicals person or do you think that they draw you into breaking out? I think no one needs to be pigeonholed, but you also got to take your opportunities where there are. And I feel like that's where the opportunities will be for a little bit until she, you know, reaches the next level. Then she can, we'll probably have. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess part of it, having an I think doing role is probably another, valuable too. I think doing another musical will be very beneficial. Because especially considering it will be live action if she does it, and it won't be her playing a kid, will probably be a big input. Like it's a Spring Awakening. I'm not super familiar with it. It's a lot more adult source material than Moana is. Like this is not yeah. a classic, more family friendly. This is a little. This is not really family friendly. This is more in the line of the Rents and like the kind of the newer age musicals that are a little bit harder edged. But the emotive singing, I. As far as I can notice, it seems like by far her strength. So you want to have something mm -hmm. that you can rely on your strength before you can challenge yourself a little bit. Yeah, she's clearly got a voice that is. Um, she has can do a lot of different things with it. It is not one dimensional. It's very impressive. Um, let's continue on to our main discussion. We're talking about Manchester by the sea, a beautiful place. Um, Zach, would you give us your wonderful? Um, timely, concise, and speedily delivered plot summary. I'm going to add everything I learned on the Amazon Prime X-Ray as I go uh, through this um, plot summary. Um, so, Casey Affleck, he's a hot janitor. We know he's a hot janitor because someone says, my janitor is hot and I have a crush on him. Um, very important key detail, and we will talk about that later. It makes it 
um, believable that Casey Affleck could be a dare by someone at least admitting that he's a hot version of one. Um, he is called to back to Manchester from he was living in Boston. He's called back to Manchester by the sea. It's um, legal name Manchester by the sea. It's officially called that is what I found out. Um, no, this is a it's on the Amazon X-ray. It's all right. No, I googled it too. Look this up. But it, through some weird mayoral campaign, they got the name legitimately um, changed to Manchester by the Sea with the dashes. Are you? Am I wrong? Or are you just surprised that I have full facts? He's making faces. His face got two inches closer to the screen. I have no idea what the outcome of this is. So it is true. You can you can know it simply as Manchester. Um, which was the name prior to 1989. Yeah. But yes, it is It is technically, yeah. you can call it Manchester by the Sea. I believe it goes by both names. Who um, did their research today? <laughs> I'm just impressed. I, I legitimately thought this was, I'm not going to lie. I thought this was a bit. I thought Zach Ford was doing a bit. <laughs> and I was about to be like, okay, Zach, this is great. You're doing a bit. You're also spreading disinformation. Um, <laughs> it's not true information. No, it's, it's literally true. This is crazy. The writing that I read too was like editorialized, very opinionated. It was like through like a really crazy and controversial mayoral campaign, they got the name changed. Like it was this big problematic issue that they wanted to change it to Manchester by the sea. Um, anyways, back to summary. So he's got called to Manchester dash by dash the dash C, um, and because his brother he's passed dead. away. <laughs> Uh, and he has, you know, he, he has to go pick up his nephew, um, who we've seen had a good relationship as a childhood. In flashbacks, they talk about sharks a lot. Uh, shocks, sorry, talk about shocks. Uh, so he has to go pick him up, tell him his father died. He finds out he is the guardian of him. And, and, and then the rest of the movie is partially about him trying to figure out how he's going to take care of um his nephew by, by Lucas Hedges, Pat, um, Kitcher's name is Patrick, um, while still trying to stay as far away from Manchester as possible because we come to know his kind of tragic past, why he left his family, why he left his time, because he um, got drunk and burned his house down and killed all his kids, um, as we all do. Um, and the movie, so partially about him trying to figure out... I think, it, I think what a, really happened is he... He was partying and he was a little negligent and yes, that stuff bad, happened. yeah, bad shit happened. Um, bad shit happened. So it's partially about him trying to figure out how to take care of his nephew and partially about him dealing with his own trauma and you know the grief, um, in that lane that interfere in his you know relationship with Patrick. So laughs are had, tears are shed. So you say you shed tears, right? Or no, shed tears. Don't shred tears. Put them through the tear shredder. Cut them in half. Stop unmaking yourself because I'm going to keep going because I don't know how to stop. <laughs> I'm just enjoying the fact that, like, if I mic if I mute myself, that just keeps talking. It just gets more ridiculous over time. Um, I mean, Matt, I love realize this I don't know how to end a sentence yet i just don't yes i i, I actually do know this because i've i've recorded like 40 plus episodes of a podcast with you and every time I, I basically the only way to stop zach is to put a muscle on him i just start signaling sos um, while the mid-sentence because i can't end my sentence i can always tell i told 
I've, I've learned how to cut in on you when you start going because you'll just start talking and you'll finish your sentence and you'll just keep going and you just start elaborating and you're it's like the it's actually kind of quite clever because it's you have this ability to say absolutely nothing but use a lot of words <laughs> to say it. In. <laughs> so everything like, you say, no thought. There's no thought there. You finished your thoughts. There's no thoughts. Left. But there are words. There will be words for hours. I will say on occasion, I can stretch it out so I get to the punchline I wanted all along, and then I'll stop. But sometimes it may take five minutes to get to that punchline. You either do one but, of two things. You just keep talking, or you just stop talking and stare at me. <laughs> <laughs> so two Zacks. Um, Let's talk about Manchester by the Sea. I love this movie. I think this is... We did, I, we did I Love You, Man, which I think you like more than I do, but we both still love. Mm-hmm. It's a Wonderful Life, which we both love, but I think I like a little bit more than you. It's probably you, a little bit just, higher rated for me. I don't think it, um, it's, it's, it's a slight. That's, yeah. No, it's a slight difference, but like it's like that's like they're probably both top 100 all time, but I'm just thinking I'm just higher. And then Manchester, which I think I like a little bit more as well. Um, yeah. This is my number two film of 2016. My number three film of the 2010s. Your life. <laughs> no, my life is much happier, and I, I'm lucky that I did not experience this. This movie is amazing. Like, I was rewatching this. Like, I remember seeing it in 2016 and being like, that movie is amazing. You've got, like, acting is amazing. Kenneth Lonergan's screenplay is, like, legitimately brilliant. And the way that he ties together the flashbacks to his past and the normal stuff is, like, it dodges all the annoying tropes sometimes you see with flashbacks. It's not goofy. They don't do any stupid stuff. It's really well played. The emotion is really well played, especially because I feel like a lot of times when you get into movies and you have super emotional stuff, they stop acting like people. Like a, quite a lot of people when you have really bad, terrible trauma, emotional stuff happen to you, don't necessarily get really loud and cryy. Sometimes it really shuts you down. And I think Casey Affleck just plays that like locked down trauma and suffering so well like he's just you can see that something is hurting him even from the first scene where he's like cleaning a toilet and like helping with sealing stuff he just has this internalized grief and it's just he's just brilliant so good i'm so like he totally deserves the oscar he he lives his life constantly in a way to just like avoid his grief in a way or to to avoid it having to fully deal with it because he knows once he has to confront this, and this is you know exhibited, and then the classic scene with Michelle Williams um, at the end. But when he when he comes face to face with you know this this trauma with you know his his role within it, he you can see there's no way for him to like return back, or it's really hard. So he's just constantly trying to keep it at a distance. That's you know the whole um, setup of the movie is why he's away from Manchester, why he's from his family, is he's just trying to keep this memory in the distance because, you know, we do see him trying to kill himself soon after the accident, and and you just know that that is always kind of glooming on the other side of things um, if, if he ever has that to kind of catch up to him. That scene is so good, the one in the police station, right after you find back. Mm-hmm. Um, it's my favorite scene. It is almost it's, it's amazing. I know it's, from the Amazon X-Ray, Kenneth Lonergan wanted to cut that scene, but Casey Affleck talked him out of it. Well, I mean, thank you, Casey Affleck, because that scene is so good. Just the just watching him, there's just this sense of like he feels like he deserves to be punished. So when he's talking to these officers and they're like, no, we're gonna let you go, 
He's like, there's no penalty. Like he feels such an intense sense of guilt for his inability to put a screen over the fireplace that caused the death of his children that he thinks he should be punished and they're letting him go. And he walks, you get this really slow walk and he's just, he doesn't look violent. He doesn't look suicidal. He just looks catatonic. He looks out of it and he walks out and then he grabs the gun and tries to end it because in his mind, he deserves to be punished for what he did. And he's like trying to, I think it's a combination of he doesn't want to live in a world where he has to acknowledge what he did. And also he wants to punish himself for the awfulness that he's caused. Um, Affleck is so good at playing the two timelines too. And one thing that's most impressive of this is that he doesn't look that different in the two timelines physically. He's very similar, but the, but it's his it's face, the, the, the way he carries acting, his face, the way he yeah. carries his face, the way he speaks, the way he acts, everything that an actor Gosh, can dude. control, change. Yeah, he completely changes all this stuff. He he's not he doesn't look older. His face looks the same. He's not really got different hair or beard or anything. But it's the way that he chooses to like present himself that is just significantly different. Because the old Lee talked to people and chatted to people and like had this outward engagement with the world, and. Lee, the president, Lee, the handyman, is just, he has nothing. He will respond if you specifically speak to him in a moment. But he doesn't engage with people. He doesn't want to engage with people. And he will actively not engage in situations where not engaging makes you look like a complete weirdo. Like literally sitting in a room with somebody and refusing to engage because he just doesn't have any interest in that. In the manner where when he does choose to engage with people is also a you know act of self punishment, which is you know picking fights with strangers in bars just to I don't know probably feel pain in the way or to let out aggression. Um, that's the only oh, like, think, yeah. There's something about that like wanting to get hurt when he picks those. That's fights. the only you know. Um, yeah. Because they're not yeah. brought up, especially the one later on isn't brought up by anything. It's completely a picked picked on fight. Uh, but it, and there's something he said that that's the like the only time for the first half hour of the movie where he like chooses to interact with someone was to like say, "Hey, do you want to fight me?" More or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how we met. You came up to me and hey, what the fuck are you looking at? And then you punched me in the face. Actually, exactly what happened was that I was trying to clip picture shower. And then you got really weird about it. And I was like, <laughs> then I called and said, so stand. <laughs> um, let's talk about all the really small characters in this film that are just so good and go yeah. right back to the beginning. His supervisor is famed uh, thespian Stephen Henderson, who we would see yeah. in films like Lady Bird and Fences and stuff. Um, so good at Lady Bird. So oh, he's like—he might be my favorite. He might be my favorite performance in the entire film. Um, he's so good. He's but like this is the thing that this movie does is that Lonergan has such a control over who he wants in this movie, his screenplay, everything. Zach, for yeah. me, did it lose Zach? No, he's back. All right. No, it's just—it's just such an amazing work by Lonergan. I mean, obviously, we can talk about the acting as individual performances, but I think Lonergan is just. He's so on his game here. Like, well, there's we've talked about Lonergan's a master of tone and he gets the actors that will fit that tone perfectly. Because, you know, we were saying off camera how people think this movie's, you know, such a hard watch and just just a gut punch and that doesn't have anything to offer. But that's this 
the opposite of how Lonergan works his films, he's the perfect at doing the emotional, heart-wrenching gut punch into a real situation with real people who have, you know, humor and who have actual interactions, real interactions with each other and don't get completely consumed by their grief. You know, you know, that's the point of Casey Affleck's character, but the world around him is not consumed by this, um, you know, melodramatic tone. Um, so there's still a lot of levity in the movie that we say makes it, you know, highly watchable, even though there's such tragedy within it. And I think Lonergan's just great at casting the people that can work on tone. I think Casey Affleck is perfect on tone. He has his weird, mumbly charm to him that I think he's able to express, um, but also can carry such pain. And that's just Lonergan on script. It's someone with a charm, but carries such pain in his pen. You're yeah, I mean, there are so many funny moments. <laughs> I really don't. Um, I don't. I really don't. I got to shave it. Um, this movie has. You're talking about the the humor. Um, I, I think it's 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 actually really intelligent of Lonergan as a screenwriter to realize that in moments of tragedy, in moments of sadness and bad news, there is a weird. Um, a lot of times people do reach for humor, even in the darkest moments. I mean, there they he does this several times throughout the film, and it feels really accurate. One of the first sequences is when we meet Patrick's father, played by Cal Chandler, and he's in the hospital because he has, like, his heart is weak and his heart mechanism is weak. And um, they're talking to the doctor about, like, what this condition means and what they can do. And his wife is kind of hysterical. Uh, Patrick's mom and Kyle Chandler's wife is kind of hysterical. And there's this moment where the doctor says a somewhat silly phrase to say to anyone in, in a hospital, but obviously not, you know, not trying to be malicious, but says something like, it's not a good disease. To which um, Kyle Tanner goes, what's a good, what is a good disease? And they have this, like, almost this vaudeville bit where, you know, Lee, Casey Athlete Lee goes and goes, athlete's foot. And they just have this, this kind of jokey moment. And the wife can't handle it. She loses it and walks out of the room. Um, but there is this kind of really funny dark moment in the middle of it where uh, Casey Affleck and Kyle Chandler and the, and the doctor are kind of having this almost joke about what would be a good disease. But it also feels really accurate to the way people respond to stuff. Like I feel like in movies a lot of times they make the mistake of thinking whenever you get bad news, everyone's response is always to be super solemn and sad. People also have like a real dark sense of humor in the worst moments. And this film really captures that. Um, impressively well. I don't think only have the dark humor, but that's a real way that people process things. It's kind of the way we see Patrick. He's someone who doesn't lose his charm through his grief. He's still able to respond, you know, as a human for the most part, kind of keep his um, you know, real persona throughout it. He's, of course, you know, dealing with stuff, you see him have an anxiety attack, but he's still able to interact with his friends. He still can make jokes and quips and try to break through his uncle. Um, because that's how real people act. You don't get completely consumed where, to where you, you know, lack any kind of personality or charisma anymore, which I think was where other movies that can be a little too um, cruel um, and a little more hard to watch, I think, is where they lack, is that they create kind of a false atmosphere, a false tonality of, you know, miserableism. Uh, but this movie does not go into it. Is, it cannot be described in any way a miserableist movie. Yeah, this is not this. Lonergan is very clearly trying not to make sadness porn. This movie is not about being sad. 
people have tragedies. It's about trauma. It's about how re like going again to the site of past trauma brings up previous trauma, how you have to deal with it, how people have different approaches to trauma. In some ways, Lee and Patrick are really big sides of coins for how people approach trauma. I mean, we see Lee originally, we see trauma happen and we see the result, which is that Lee completely, you know, retreats within himself. He doesn't engage with anyone. He basically moves from Manchester to Boston, takes a one room, becomes a janitor and like, basically does not have a life remotely similar to his previous one. Yeah, because you're just going to loud yeah. down? Keep... I didn't right, turn right. anything on. Okay. I have That's no fine. idea what's happening. I'm trying to mess with my internet. It seems like there's a delay. I'm, I'm trying to make myself better, but I have no idea what you're hearing. All right, all right, all right. I'm we'll, currently we'll work looking up the outline. Like, I got worried. Okay, I feel I like it. I had a great joke that I forgot, but I don't think I have a great joke. And then, oh, continuing with my point, Patrick is kind of the opposite of the turn. Patrick has this, he loses his father, and he's very focused on, in some ways, his escape from his grief and his trauma is being with people. Clearly, if you watch Patrick through this film, he doesn't feel the weight of his father's passing when he is playing in his band or hanging out with these girls or talking with his friends or at school, it's the moment when he's alone that he feels the most trauma, which is sort of the opposite of Lee, who seems to have the least ability to cope with the world when he's around people and wants to to like become solitary. Well, Patrick is like the complete opposite. So it is this really interesting dichotomy between these two men and the way that they approach grief. Yeah, um, Patrick is constantly seeking distraction. Well, Casey Affleck is streaking or streaking, seeking isolation. <laughs> that's an interesting. That's a different. That's a very different movie. It's a very different movie. If Lee Chandler is <laughs> but I think um, that's maybe where some of the growth happens with um, you know Casey Affleck's character is that he he learns by the way you know Patrick is dealing with it that you you do need other people around you. I I would say the movie doesn't have a nice clean resolution but there's still some slight growth he still has plans to you know connect with you know patrick but he can't fully commit and that's really what i think is the most successful part of the movie is it doesn't take that easy way out by the end because mm -hmm. uh, you think that there's a there's a clean conclusion if they wanted to he can decide to move to manchester to you know kind of start a new family in his own way with him and patrick and and ingrain himself back in the community but but in reality you know his Grief is still too much for that. You see him get into a fight just like 10 minutes before this decision, him still acting out, um, you know, in his pain. Um, that, that That's not a real response or even a real option for his character. So the route it takes of having him, you know, make a plan for Patrick to change guardianship, to get him adopted by, um, you know, that great, the great friend of Kyle Chaley's character, great guy. Mm -hmm. That He's he's a top contender for a great hang. Um <laughs> And, um, but still have some connections to be able to move back. He does move closer to a different town of Boston. I did uh, Google Maps this, by the way. Um, so Quincy, um, according to Google Maps, is like a 50-minute drive. But they said with traffic in the movie, they talk about how the traffic gets worse. Um, but where he moves, I think, Charlestown. It says like 30 minutes um, from Manchester, dash by dash, the dash, C dash. Um, and... Um, so he's he's making some sort of more commitment, but not able to completely 
deal with everything again or or he's still going to be a janitor you know far away from having to see michelle williams anymore or, or to see other people because you also see how the town looks at him and it has to be like impossible for him to deal with he tries to get a job and he just can't get a job in manchester because um he has this you know shadow hanging on his back and then you see the one woman saying you cannot let him in there because people are still you know judging him for his you know crime in a sense yeah it is interesting how we don't really understand the true impact of who Lee Chandler is until we go back to Manchester because in, in the beginning of the film, he's just this nondescript janitor. He's basically no different than any other person who could be fixing the pipes or cleaning the toilets. Like there's no, there's nothing given an indication that he has something that's different than others. And then you go back to Manchester and you really get to see that not only does he have this, you're right, like crime. He has this sin in his past that people are unwilling to forget. But, um, you know, that's made him infamous and like, you know, a pariah in the community. And like, it's not, it's not unsurprising that that would have happened because um, it's clear that a lot of people witnessed the original event, but um, yeah, it makes it so that really he, he can't be in Manchester outside of a couple of days because of both his trauma and the response that others have towards him. But I mean, it's, there's nothing people love more than making complete conclusions about people with the room for forgiveness um, that they will forever hold to of people they little know. So the woman saying, I don't want to see him because she's not willing to make any room for the ideas and judgment that she said is, is like, honestly, in our times, too true. People still I mean, get to also, judgments really harsh. Yeah. That also just feels like, I'm going to be honest, a very Massachusetts trait to be like, I don't like Lee Chandler. Lee Chandler did this. I never want to see him around. Yeah. That, that, that just, that rings very true. Um, as a, you know, born and raised Massachusetts guy, uh, yeah, that feels not, not the Midwest fakery where you act like nothing ha happened and you don't do that <laughs> in the room. You just kind of keep one foot distance while you talk to him while trying to keep a smile on your face. No, fake politeness is not really a thing in Massachusetts. Um, <laughs> people kind of tell you what they think of you. Um, this actually brings me to another point, which is that this movie is, as somebody from Massachusetts, really accurate. I don't, I'm, I'm on a, is, I don't know, maybe you know, is Kenneth Lonergan from Massachusetts? Is he, does he live in Massachusetts? I would assume so. Because he seems really, he's from, being that he based the um, moment where he's, Casey Affleck is yelling at Patrick, and they get, there's a interchanger that says, um, Good parenting. Kenneth Lundgren based that on a real um, thing that happened with him yelling at his daughter. That that makes me think that he lives in Massachusetts if he would encounter a stranger like that. Interesting. He looks like he went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. I don't know if he's exactly, but he's oh, definitely New England I, area. I, he is the guy that shouts good parenting, right? That is Kenneth yeah, Lundgren yeah, in the movie. That's okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, this movie is like this. There's like a couple moments in this film which are just really accurate to Massachusetts. One of them is the first scene at the hospital. He shows up. The nurse tells him that his brother's dead, and he just he has this outburst of "fuck this," which is like really loud and really aggressive compared to the rest of the scene. And then he like there's like a really really awkward moment of silence, and then he apologizes. And the guy, um, what's his name, George, I think. Yeah, the Chandler family friend like slaps him on the shoulder in a way that is just really weirdly accurate um all the part like just there's so many people in this you just kind of recognize um from living here it's just like the the way that people deal with grief at times is really interesting um the kind of repressed nature of it 
but also like the anger, but then kind of like pulling back almost instantly is just really, it feels really accurate. Um, they also shot it basically all in Massachusetts, which is why from just like a visual, yeah. it looks like Massachusetts. Um, looks great for like a low key indie drama in a way. It looks, oh, it looks real gorgeous. It's very atmospheric, it's very environmental or natural in a way. Like you can like feel the wind, you know, brush through your hair and you can smell the sea. It's very textural in a way. It makes you feel like you're in Boston or Massachusetts, not Boston, but Manchester dash by dash, dash C. Yeah. Um, so the, the cinematographer is Jody Lee Lips, who has also done the cinematography for another film we've talked about in this podcast, which is A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Which I don't think is actually that's low key. I think looks good. It has a graininess to it that is, which I don't think is that surprising. It's very much like shooting environments as they are, like taking advantage of what the you know, like I'm gonna. This is the city, so I'm gonna shoot it like the city. This is the the water, so I'm gonna shoot like the water. Just kind of like taking advantage of the environments that you're placed in. But there's Um, such a textural warmth that fits the mood of both those movies because it's still you know we're talking about how hard this movie is still warm. There's still kind of a, a blanketness quality to it like i feel like i could watch this at the worst of moods and still somehow like uh, make me feel better through an act of catharsis not make me feel better through lightly but a way for you to you know get a deep hug while you cry <laughs> in a way um i do want to say real quick because i did my research um can i thought again it's a new yorker yeah, I looked it up. Yeah. Grew up in the school in New York. Yeah. Um, th- there's a lot of similarities between New York and Boston, as much as you want to um, not admit to it. Um, so oh, it's I'm, kind of I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to argue that. There's definitely a lot of similarities, <laughs> especially between the way that the people act, that are very similar between New Englanders and New Yorkers. Um, we have a similar chip on our shoulder. Fuck the rest of the world. We're the best place on earth um, mentality, um, and like a kind of sense of just. We don't have a lot of patience for people um, as, you know, we don't have patience for foolishness. We're kind of like, get out of my face. Um, Yeah, there's definitely some similarities. I also think Matt Damon is one of the producers in this film and was in in famous, I believe, was supposed to play the Casey Affleck role for a while until he couldn't do it. And they went with Affleck, which like, thank God. I I thought he chose not to do it. I thought he he said, I think. I thought he said that someone would be better and that Casey would be better. I think he bowed out knowing that there would be better casting. As a, It was like a producer decision that he made. Is no, he didn't have I a break thought. in his schedule. Okay. So that's why he went ahead. Okay. Um, which is, like, I love Matt Damon. Um, Matt Damon could not do this movie. He could do this movie. It would be a little different. It won't be as, you know, grief-strucken. But he can do that, the... He could do the like pre um, tragedy moments really well. The chemistry that you'd have with Kyle Chandler and with Patrick would be great. I think it would be a little more Rebata Zoo-ish in its actor tonality. It would have been, it would have been, I don't think think it would have been as nuanced. I don't think, as much as Damon is a considerably more famous and loved personality than Casey Affleck, um, Affleck has just like a complexity to him and like a a sense of like like an extra level. Of deepness as an actor that I don't think Damon really possesses. Damon doesn't play a lot, a lot of deep emotions. More in soulful. That's like Casey yes, Affleck's exactly. trend is that he. It's like the emotions somehow are in his sleeve, but like not being emitted. Like you still keep them right at the tip of his sleeve. Is just the weight that he carries around. He seems like he's constantly carried the weight of the world, and it seems very socially intelligent in his performances. 
Yeah. It's definitely would be a very different movie. Um, let's talk about the rest of the cast. Yeah. Um, Cow Chandler. Let's do Cow Chandler. That's who I want to talk about. Yeah. Cow Chandler. Think about Cow best Chandler? performance. It's his best performance. And um, Friday Night Lights can compare. I know that's his most famous, and it's the unfair TV boost because he's gotten to play a character for years. But I think if you judge on a sole basis, I think this is his performance that works best. I think this is. I think because he gets to shine charismatically in his chemistry with Casey Affleck, but then I think his best scene is after the tragedy, him moving, you know, Casey Affleck into the apartment, still, you know, being the brother that's being there for him, trying to give him a push to, you know, live some life of normalcy and where he's kind of pushing, like, you need furniture and, like, we're going to go out and get furniture and he, like, takes a pause mm. to, like, Casey Affleck gather himself. He's like, okay, now it's time to get up. Let's go get something. And I think that's... um just a great, caring big brother chemistry. He, because just like Casey Affleck, I think Kyle Chandler seemed just like very empathetic and very socially intelligent to know how to work off other people's emotions um, in the right way. And I think that comes perfectly in this movie. Yeah, I would agree. He is really good, especially the scene where he's like, You're going to drive there. How long is it going to take you? When are you going to call me? Because he's clearly talking, like, his understanding of the situation where he's talking to a brother who has just tried to commit suicide. And, like, mm -hmm. very clearly, like, I'm not letting this happen. You're going to call me. I'm calling the cops if you don't call me. Which is something you see with people who, like, have family members who are potential suicide threats. It's, like, a lot of, like, you need to check in with me. You need to make sure you're telling me you're okay. Otherwise, I will call somebody to check for me. You know, just like the, if you have a, if you have a potential depressive episode, if you have this clear suicidal ideation that you need to make sure you're letting me tell telling me that that's not occurring so that i can make sure that you're okay yeah i think post Friday night lights people got the wrong idea of what made him a good performer is they thought like you know football coach authority figure so he can be like cops or you know military people on um, any kind of authority you know leader which i do not think is strength i think the part that works in Friday night lights and in this is he has more of the like towny, more of the blue collar quality they can fit in, you know, with the everyday people. Um, it's just where I think he, you know, exhibits his skills the best. Like bloodlines, he's really great in bloodlines that has the same, a little bit of like griminess to the community that he's ingrained in. Yeah, I mean, he's an interesting performer in that, like, I would, he's not consistent with his performances. Like no. and I think that is part of what you were saying. Light ties in what you're probably saying. He gets sometimes gets cast in roles that don't fit what he does, and then you really see like um he's like he gets fine, but he doesn't he's serviceable. He can't shine. Yeah, past he can be somewhat bad the, too. I think it's script. like I think it's sometimes they throw him into these like generic larger um like action movie types things where he kind of starts to struggle and just or doesn't even seem like Wolf of Wall Street, he's just playing an FBI agent and he doesn't elevate what was there on the script for him. Yeah. He doesn't really that, make much out of the character. You watch that he role just and serves you're, like, the plot. You're, like, you're like, why isn't this John Hamm or somebody who has a little bit more umph to that to that type of performance? Yeah. Um, continuing. So George, the Chandler's family friend, is played by C.J. Wilson, who's um, got a Great. relatively small career. Um He's also in Demolition, The Intern, and Trial of the Chicago 7. Um, so he's just a really kind of good, gruff, blue-collar New Englander 
like he he's always there for Lee. He's like, I'll call these people. I'll take care of this. I'll take care of that. He doesn't. New Englanders can be kind of tough and mean and kind of assholes. Yeah. But if they choose to come there to, to, to be there for somebody, they will be there a hundred percent. And you really see that like George doesn't have a reason. George doesn't really need to be there doing all this stuff. He doesn't have to agree to call the mom and call the ex-wife and call this person and talk to the funeral. Like he takes on this huge amount of stuff really quickly and totally never complains. He offers to like take care of Patrick and become his like there's so many things this guy steps up into that he does not need to step into that he like that no one would um no one would blame him if he didn't, but he's just like he's just like the rock of that group. And he just steps up for Lee and helps him out. Like in the moment when Lee really doesn't know what he's doing. And like, you gradually get to see Lee get better at how dealing with everything. But initially Lee is just like, um, I don't know how to deal with any of this stuff anymore. I've been in Boston in one room by myself for years. Yeah. And he seems like a little overwhelmed by it. Like he's kind of just making up as he goes too, but he has that great loyalty of this kind of surrogate bigger brother. Um, that he was, you know, as Kyle Chandler's, you know, probably closest friend. So we assume he was his work partner, at least, um, on yeah. the boat. Um, that I think just it, it creates a very warm performance. A guy's like a teddy bear. And like, if anyone I want to, we're going to talk about greatest hang later, but I'm going to add a new category, which is greatest hug. You would get the oh, best yeah. hug. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, he, yeah, he's just like, he's just a complete rock. He's like, He's like the old dog you just want around. He's just like the nicest, mm-hmm. loyal person. You just you just need people like that in your life. Um, this movie has a lot of people who had fame in previous decades kind of pulled out of obscurity a little bit and then plopped into roles. So Tate Donovan plays uh, Patrick's hockey coach in like two scenes or something. He, he has one of the more awkward moments of the movie too. Oh right, yeah, the- right when he's yelling and like pretty much almost kicks him off the team to immediately find out his dad just died. So he's like, "Ah, oh, take back what I said. You can come skate with us." Yeah, you can see that that was just like he meant what he said in the moment, and then the moment changed rapidly, and he had to try to figure out how to <laughs> deal with a very, very different reality that they were now in. Um, yeah, but it's, just, it's just kind of, he's just kind of a fun performance to have in the film. Um, yeah, it's, he's just he, he's he's good. And I like kind of like just one of those like classic actors that um I think works well in this. Like he doesn't try to be anything more than he needs to be. He's just the hockey coach. And I think he kind of just Lottery Game seems really good at getting people to buy into playing kind of very normal people. Like this movie is filled with just a lot of really normal people. It's like the guy on the fishing boat and the hockey coach and you know somebody's girlfriend and yeah. somebody's girlfriend's mom. Like there's just a lot of really normal people. Like there's nothing. Like- the community seems real. It's the gloss is taken off a little bit. Even I said Casey Affleck, you'd be like, no, it's gonna believe him as like the janitor thing. That guy's like too good looking. But they they comment on that, and he's still, you know, a little scruffy. All not. He'd just be like the one randomly good looking guy in town. You get the random good looking janitor, but everybody else is just the right level of real looking and real acting and accents and scruffiness yeah. and baggy clothes that don't fit you. Squall jackets and you know, <laughs> the right the right kind of hats and like, there's a lot of scenes where like people are just randomly wearing like kind of a ratty piece of uh, Boston sports gear and that's just very you know New England. Um, 
Yeah, they're just really good at getting people to invest. Um, even like even Affleck is really good at they make the comment about him being the hot janitor, but he also just every move he makes with the way he holds his body makes him look worse than he actually is. Yeah. Like he looks he's kind of he looks kind of scrawny and like kind of hunched over because of the way he holds himself. He just never he does never like he never really like pulls his shoulders up and back. He never really like, you know, makes himself look as impressive. Like, no, he's a good-looking guy. He never really makes himself look as good-looking as he actually is. Like he always is kind of underplaying it by the way that he stands, but it also feels like accurate because it relates to the trauma. It doesn't feel like hey Brad Pitt, can you put on this crappy jacket and like pretend to be less attractive? Like, you know, it's kind of it just works in terms of it works narratively. Yeah. Um for sure. So, Sylvie, uh, who's one of Patrick's girlfriends, I believe this is the um, this is not the yes. one who has the mother, is played by um, Kara Hayward, who is it's a, it's a, girl a reunion. From, it's a reunion it is between Lucas from Hedges, Moon Rise Kingdom, which is because which stars Lucas Hedges. Most important role in that movie as the like Boy Scout gang leader. He's not the most important role, but he's like the Boy Scout gang leader, kind of going on the hunt for. Yeah, Kara Hayward and um, I forget the actress name, but so yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it is a weird reunion for him. But she kind of gets the short end of the stick in this movie. She she's the one there for him right as a death and just gets ignored for the girl in the band the rest of the movie. Yes, um, Patrick playing the field a little bit, being a little naughty, um, kind of a dick. He's kind of a like, dick. There is one scene, like I think I think it's actually this interesting interesting moment where it's like. He does sort of like he's he's got that that teenage boy dickishness where he is a arrogant enough to think he is big enough shit that he he deserves two girls and like even the way he talks about it like to the, the adult like he literally straight up tells Lee Chandler yeah I have two of them they don't know about each other please don't tell them about me oh yeah he's way too confident in sexuality I would have hated him as a teenager there's there's some great lines though like. <laughs> Uh, he, he says one girl because of her mother eats only basement stuff. And Lee goes, what does that mean? He goes, it means I'm working on it. It's just some, there's some good lines. That one works because of the accent. That's a real like Boston accent working on it. It really is. Bringing us to the other <laughs> girlfriend, Sandy. She's not played by somebody we recognize, but her mom, Jill, is played by Heather mm. Burns, who famously works in the bookshop in You've Got Mail. Yeah. And saw saw it perform. She gets her own awkward moments. I do want to talk about the one aspect of the movie that does not work for me. It is a performance. You could probably okay. guess what it is. Interesting. Which is, like... You want to guess who, who I think is the bad performance of the movie? I think I'm. I think you're about to say it, and I'm about to disagree with you. Is it, so it's Gretchen Mall. Gretchen Mall is bad. She who is, plays I mean, his mom. I think her story is also okay, I done. Her story is given a real disservice, I think, as well. Because they kind of rush through it that you can't fully understand why she gets so separated other than, you know, she seemed to have some kind of substance abuse. But for her to go completely off the grid and leave kind of gets left into the blanks a little bit. They had to read a little too much into it. Well, they have several lines that sort of explains it. There's at least several mentions of um, substance abuse, um, being in a psych ward. Yeah. I think in some ways, I don't know if she's terrible. I wouldn't, I, it's, it's never performance that I've stood out and he's like, she's terrible to me. It is a, it's a role that is very, it's for, you know, there's, there's no, there's no glory in playing that role. Um, 
you're the character that is just kind of a mess constantly. Um, kind of has nothing going for them. And yeah, it's what you are seeing of her too, from her being like a little bit caught up in the grief of hearing that Kyle Chandler's not going to last. And the next year you see it, she's a drug addict and she's gone. It's such like a fast line for it to cross. Well, she I seems mean, I somewhat it's normal. It's like almost giving in to them saying what an asshole she is during that scene, which is, was unfair in the moment, but you're led to believe that that might be true, even though you don't. I love the way that that happens where she gets hysterical and storms out and then they all trash her for a second. And then legal, she's an asshole, and the other two guys get mad. <laughs> and I'm like, that's so New Englander right there. That you would trash this woman, and then somebody calls her an asshole, so they have to defend her. It's just, it's a great. I mean, I think that, I think that, I think that the goal of the film, and you can argue if this lands or not, is that from the first scene, she's clearly just so out of touch with everybody else there. Yeah. Like she's. She's in a totally different universe than everybody else. Like but I don't Leah's know if that's on purpose. Leah's, she's still like a townie, <laughs> but she acts like she's in a whole different movie. I think that she's I think so the, much more stylized and so much more over the top, dramatic about everything that yeah. it, it's it's like a completely different performance, a completely different director. It just feels like she, they directed her scenes. I don't know if I don't know if that's Lana Gruen. If that might be, she just can't Is, play the 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 like the more toned down version. I do it's like just as connected to it's as down to earth, not as felt. I feel like it, it. It just seems more performative. I don't think we ever really get to see an honest look at what she's feeling. To me, everything she is performing. Her, I guess it, to me, it feels a scene. It feels a lot of like um, she has problems with the situation, and there's obvious understanding of the trauma, but also the way she chooses to react to it is just incredibly off-putting for everybody else in the scenes um yeah. what it's like to me it's like the frustrating it's, it's 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 actually kind of a i think it's it's important to have in the film to show that when people experience trauma or experience tragedy or like bad news mm -hmm. one of the worst things that people are is the person who tries to take the attention away from the person actually experiencing the bad thing in those situations and like she's that classic person in that situation who's like Lee Chandler is the um, Kyle Chandler is the one who's just found out that his heart is weak and he potentially might only live into his sixties, and she's making it all about her when it's like, shut up. This scene is this is not about you. He's the one with the heart condition. Like I don't think let him she's making it about her. That's why I think she seems very rational in that moment. She's like, you're joking and you have like a family and a son. It's making it about the bigger picture. It's more like when your mind races and goes to all the possibilities and everything in the future that can be, you know, without him is where her stress comes from. And I think that's really real. And I don't think it's about her. I mean, I think she was being treated unfairly in that scene. And then that leads to the movie just completely dismissing of her. I also think it's just like, I, I mean, in some ways it's like, I, I don't really think I want more of her though, is the weird thing like i feel like she needs to be in the story because we need to understand why patrick's mom isn't around so that lee has to come to the story yeah. but at the same time i don't really want more of that character i don't think that anything is going to be learned more than what we're told about the fact that she was in psych wards and had drug addiction like letting her dog crap on the floor like all the stuff about her i think sets up the picture that this was a person who is deeply unwell and either having her substance abuse accentuate her mental illness or using a substance abuse to try to counteract the mental illness and whatever happened, it did not end up well. Um, I do really think this brings it up to one of my sneaky favorite performances in this film, which is Matthew Broderick. 
as her weird, <laughs> weird, creepy, um, super evangelical Christian husband, which I, I love this scene because it brings up something that's very New England, which is that he, Christianity is not a, a thing that New Englanders are against or Massachusetts people are against. Um, Everyone's Catholic. Everybody hates that kind of Christianity is the thing. There, I mean, this state is a state filled with Irish and Italian immigrants. Like, there's so, Catholicism is huge in Massachusetts. The thing that people don't like, and this is, leads to what a great exchange in the car, is um, that, like, really fake, I have to bring up Christianity every time I make a statement or about anything, and, like, I can't take a joke. Because, like, Catholicism is always, it's clearly a religion that people believe in. But there's also this sense of Catholicism being um, not only religious but cultural, and but also so that allows people to play into the ideas of, you know, we're Catholic and we go to church on Sunday, but also like we watch football and we, you know, we get plastered watching the Bruins. Like there's a sense of like um, intermingling of the religion and their real life in a way that doesn't make them seem as sterile as uh, Matthew yeah. Broderick does in his scenes. It's um, a commit your sins and pray about it later kind of Catholic. Yeah, absolutely. That's very much the New England thing. And Matthew Broderick is like, like he's too religious for the Catholics. You know, like he's he's reached that he's level. A, it does seem like he's a bind up kind of Christian. It's like born again yeah, I, evangelical. Like it's the stuff that um, is somewhat too extreme for people in New England to deal with. And but it also makes for a great scene. And he's also it's very the good hiding your sins and act like they don't exist. Right, right. It's yeah. He's also that's the thing. Is he a monster? Is he holding her against her will and taking charge of all her, you know, interactions as you see with the letter? But is there more going on? Is he controlling her finances? Is he like the guardianship? Is he keeping her, you know, locked up? I think he's secretly a monster, and um, we need to put him on trial. We need to put him on the internet. Uh, Matthew Broderick in general, he... Matthew Broderick character. Let's bring Matthew Broderick down. I don't think he's a monster. I, I don't think. I, mean, I think he's a really weird dude. But like, let's do it for a second. Super suspicious. The like handle but, all interactions through me was a real kind of controlling. Yes, but I think there's also a legitimate argument the film makes that his mom might not be able to handle interactions. Like, but isn't he kind of taking advantage of her when she is in that situation? It's almost like he's not going to get anyone that beautiful ever again. So he's going to take them in their crazy and take control of their life. He's really taking advantage of that woman. It's definitely a, it's definitely a creepy situation with um, it does feel a little bit culty in that he is super religious and almost cult like in his Christianity and she is somebody who has clear issues with addiction and like um, mental health slash understanding of reality and like what is the things you should focus on so yeah it does come off as really and that scene is but it also just leads to a great scene following with Affleck and. Hedges, where they're clearly just like disgusted by that thing as a concept, <laughs> and leads to yeah. a great line, which is, which is when he goes, "He was just so Christian," and Lee Chandler goes, "You do realize Catholics are Christians, right?" Which is just a great line, <laughs> but also like totally accurate to that situation because if you showed that scene to a bunch of New Englanders, they would crap on him for being this weird Christian, and then somebody would remind them that they all go and you know take communion every Sunday. They'd be like, "Yeah, but Catholic, we're Catholics. That's a different thing. This is, this is a different thing here." But it's it's just very accurate and also just um, a really funny and like really smart scene.
Yeah, I, I think his performance is good. I mean, that's the role Matthew Broderick has. And as you were kind of saying, Gretchen, what was the outsider? He's a true outsider. He's supposed to kind of be a clash with their um, life and their community. Um, and it works. Yeah. Um, let's see. Josh Hamilton is the lawyer that they speak to. Josh Hamilton, who would have a big role a couple years later in eighth grade. Okay. That's not his most important role. He no, but is it's, a, it's a bigger role, and the audience will generational defining performance and um, the classic kicking and screaming. Absolutely, um, which he should have should have led to a bigger career that didn't happen. Um, More importantly, plays research tech number two in the board identity. <laughs> <laughs> sure, he's he's good. I. I what I think it's funny too is he like doesn't have the clean kindness of like a lawyer. He seems like a little bit off, a little bit disheveled, which seems very small town interested by the seat lawyery. That works. Oh, he's like, very much like like <laughs> I am. He's if you go to his office, he's clearly like it's a small office. He's clearly the only lawyer there. He has one receptionist. She's probably worked at the firm since like his dad was there. His dad has died, but the receptionist is still there or something. Like it, it really feels like a small town law firm. We're like. He doesn't. He's not doing anything big. He he's basically exists so he can you know fill out divorce papers and wills. Yeah. Like that's kind of like seems like his 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 baseline function is wills and divorce papers. And like occasionally, if someone wants to sell a boat, he might get involved to write up the paperwork. Like he has this like it's a very low key like lawyer. Seems, job. seems like seems like someone who's like very smart, like to be a lawyer to be he like capable and intelligent, but maybe just not that ambitious and maybe not that organized. That's kind of where his max of his career lies. Or he just came back to take over like the family firm and yeah, like he could have gotten a job at a bigger firm, but he would decided to go back and, you know, help out his dad or something, you know, in the family firm. Um, finally, we talked about this Kenneth Lonergan cameos as the, Manchester pedestrian. Uh, he's so good. It's such a good small scene. Like, legitimately, if you were to talk about like best one scene performances by actors, by like, a director, really, one scene performance really, by a director. He's like legitimately really good in that scene. Uh, he also just looks like a he new He's got like the messed up hair. He's got the squall jacket on. No, he has several lines. Because he says nice parenting to them, like which is also here. just a classic like New Englander asshole thing where you're going to comment on somebody else's behavior. I get very worried about this often. I was at the zoo with Theo, and he, I, I, everything's outside uh, due to COVID at this point. And I was trying to put him in the stroller. It was just me and him. Um, and he had a complete meltdown because he just wanted to keep running around. And so I'm just like manhandling him and in a stroller. And I was waiting for someone to come and like <laughs> question me on my, my physicality and my parenting. Question. You live in the Midwest. Though, so I think like the Midwest is a little bit more. They um, avoid. Yeah, they will avoid anything. In Massachusetts, um, they'll, call, they'll, they'll carry it. They'll call, call somebody on me. I'll get reported in the background. <laughs> but nothing will be done face to face. Yeah, Massachusetts is a little more abrupt. Um, it's just a really funny scene where he says, nice parenting, and then Lee yells at him, and they basically threaten to fight each other in the middle of the street. <laughs> I do want to to re real quickly clarify, because <laughs> when I ended the next story that quick, it makes it seem like I was really rough. I was just holding his arm down like, so I can get the arm band around him. It was not yeah, that strong. Was, it was my own, was it was my own insecurity that I was worried about, but I think it's an everyday parent moment that was happening. But always worried about when your child has tantrums, you get worried about people thinking you're a bad parent. I feel like every parent who has a car seat or stroller has at one point tried to figure out how to get clasped over a child who is having a flip out. 
and um, probably probably looked like a prison guard trying to restrain a prisoner when it was in fact just a child who just really wanted to keep running around in circles. Because his body will flail, will go like a plank board and just slide down. Children are really weird like that. They like they're they're not very large. They're not very strong. But for some reason, they have a flip out. They figure out how to like lock all their joints into places. You can't move them. It's just a very weird thing. Yeah. Yeah. And we haven't talked about like the most. We've talked about Lucas Hedges. He's really good. But the, yeah, really good. the performance that is killer and so valuable to this film is Michelle Williams. And is this who you thought I was going to say was bad? No, I thought you were going to say Broderick. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, Michelle Williams is so good in this movie. She plays his ex-wife. Um, she just has this really good. She's really good in both timelines. In the original timeline, she's really good as just the. You guys are a bunch of fucking idiots. We go to bed. It's two a.m. Stop fooling around. Um, she's just—that's the real Massachusetts romance of it all. That they're just like swearing and bickering all the time. But they're still like a kind of love and a smile while they do it. Like it's never the true anger. You know, there's like fucking idiot. You fucking sweat. Oh, yeah. You take a goddamn shower. There was a lot of really good love. And she's really good in that timeline. And then. She's really, really good. Um, maybe the best scene in the movie is the. I didn't. The funniest thing is I did not remember this in the original watch. That scene occurs like fifteen minutes from the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, it's the were, emotional climax in a way. It's him finally having to confront with the pain after he's been hiding from it so long. It's coming face yeah. to face with him. But one thing I love about the scene is that it stays true to the characters. Lee Chandler would never have an emotional talk he would never have a detailed talk he would never have a big breakdown and you can clearly see the emotion on his face and the pain in his eyes and you know he's crying on the inside but yeah. lee chandler doesn't let that stuff he'd never have the big emotional scene and the fact that lonergan can stick so close to who these characters are um I would advise anyone to go look up what this like what the actual dialogue is because it's sometimes hard to hear in the scene it's so oh I watched it's it so brilliant. it's brilliantly written. It's a brilliant, brilliant scene between two really good actors when Michelle Williams is trying to explain that she said all these terrible things about him and she hated him, but she loves him and she doesn't want him to hurt himself and he keeps telling her there's nothing there and she wants to have lunch and he can't talk about it. And he's like, That's not a good idea. We shouldn't talk about that. And she's like, No, I know I'm hurting you, I know I'm hurting you. He's like, No, you're not hurting me, I just can't, and the, like this. It's. I don't know if I've seen a better scene that ex that expresses like pain and trauma and um, the connection people have even when terrible things happen. Like the idea that they loved each other, something terrible happened, but they still loved e love each other. They just can't be together because the the cloud of that trauma is hanging over the relationship, which is why they are not together anymore, and why she's had another kid and moved on to somebody else, but still loves him even because you can't get rid of that bond. You just can't be together because they clearly just remind each other so much of everything they've lost and yeah. how they can never get all that stuff back. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely yeah, I, brilliant. Like, I, what stuck out to me the most was the contrast between those characters. You kind of briefly touched on it, but you know, 
as she is someone who her emotions are seasoned, she wants that release. She wants to have the moment to let go, to deal with it, because that's the way she can move past it. It needs constantly trying to avoid. In a way, this is another, you know, addition to him trying to self-punish. Like, he can't have that cut. Him avoiding that conversation is punishing himself. He's not letting himself be um, forgiven. He can't deal with that forgiven. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want to have the ability to have some kind of cathartic conversation that, that goes to the next level. He doesn't believe he deserves that. And he says that too. Like, I don't deserve, you know, forgiveness. I don't deserve anything. It's it's that continual him trying to make sure he's being punished for his actions. will never let himself forgive himself or let someone else forgive him. So that's why he just <laughs> needs to leave. And that control that he has in the performance too of – him just kind of mumbling, like, I need to go, I need to go, is the, one of the most relatable things I've seen in the movie. Like, this is a very important part of trying to deal with anger, you know, deal with conflict. Is sometimes you just feel the need to leave, that you can't be part of the situation, and almost to where he's, he's like, shaking within that, trying to restrain, so he just has to walk away. And I found that very you know, powerful as well. Yeah, and, like, she really needs to get out her sense of guilt like he has a guilt about what happened and she has a sense of guilt about how she him. responded to that and how she treated him in relation yeah. to that it's almost she feels it's, like she is killing him like he you know in a way she literally said she says kid. that during this yeah i don't want you to die yeah um and she goes my heart was broken because it's always going going to be broken and i know yours is broken too but i don't have to carry it i said things that I should fucking burn in hell for what I said to you. And he's, and he keeps telling her, no, 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 no. I want you to be happy. And it's. it's just so you can't just die scene is where, where it feels like you see her guilt. Like you can't just be not part of my life. You can't just fade and die in your grief and never move past this. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. She's, and he wants you in his response is she wants to have, and she wants to talk to him because I think she really does care about him and it's again back to the whole patrick thing her response to the hurt and the pain is she wants him to be there in her life and she wants to have these interactions and these talks and these discussions because she wants to atone for the things that she said to him in the aftermath but the way he deals with all this trauma he can't have those conversations because that's not who he is as a person um, I think in some ways w the brilliance of Manchester by the Sea is that Lonergan allows people to be their genuine selves, even if that's not the quote-unquote emotionally healthy option or the right option or the narratively easy option. Like The fact that Affleck through this entire film goes through all this stuff, experiences all these uh, situations where in a lesser film he would have grown and changed and moved on to a different life. And that Lonergan is allowed to allows him to walk away from this movie going, I have a connection with Patrick. It's not, I'm not going to be his new dad. He's not living with me. I'm not changing my life because I can't do that. He even says in the final scene with Patrick, I can't beat it. Um, yeah. I can't beat it. I can't beat it. I'm sorry. Which is kind of his acknowledgement that his trauma is, is forever. He can't get rid of that. He can't work past it. This is not... You know, some part, some acts of trauma that we have, you know, that happen to us, you can work past or you can figure out how to deal with. Um, and some you can't. And like the fact that this film shows so many different ways that people can deal with tragedy, you know, Chandler locks himself down. Michelle Williams 
loves him, wants to talk to him, has a new husband, has a kid, has sort of moved on, but also is still living that. Like she's kind of in both. Patrick doesn't want to deal with it, tries to surround himself with his friends, but then break down the moments where his friends are not there. But like on the whole seems relatively well adjusted compared to the other two. Um, it's one of the most emotionally intelligent films I think ever. Like Lonergan's, a, and I think it owes a lot of that to Lonergan. He's just, he, he, his understanding of people. I think that's and the like, way yeah, they interact. Specialty. Yeah. He just gets people. He gets the, the nuances of everyday normal people. Like none of these people have done anything amazing, but they've experienced trauma, which is something that so many people experience. And he just kind of lets them experience it. And it's, it makes for what on a wonderful and beautiful film that is filled with sad moments and you cry and happy and like funny moments and you laugh at like the dark humor and moments they have a they argue about fucking Star Trek and the Star Trek is lame and you know there's there's just so many good moments in this film and I think this is probably why you and me both connect to it is the emotional intelligence of the characters and um, the willingness of the filmmaker to just let people feel their emotions without a need to change them or fix them. And just kind of like the acknowledgement that people deal with this stuff differently and that's okay. And um, showing that the value of showing that is just that people will see something in a film that allows them to understand that emotions are many faceted and can be experienced in just a myriad uh, variety of ways. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk now as we wrap up. But yeah. um, who who's the best hang? So I I, I have a couple options here. So I okay, hear, you bring up the options, and I will tell you if you're wrong. Well, okay. So we already brought up um, George. You know the Sarah, George. Now, not just George though. George and his wife. Great. Couple. George's wife is a is a saint. She's a wonderful lady. Yeah, and she lets crazy Affleck that at the dinner is like those people are cool. They're only so much worried about you know the illusion of Kim Patrick. They'll shout each other about food, uh, giving pet or giving Kate Affleck food and no meal. By the way, I have seen that couple at numerous um, events in Massachusetts, <laughs> family events. The couple where it's just like they're very happy together. They just happen to be yelling at each other about like, do you want a piece of chicken on the plate at the barbecue? It's, it's just wonder, that like connection that they you know they have that is 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 very real. Um, it she's also like really a good in the scene with marriage. She's great in the scene where um, after Affleck gets beat up and he brings him back to the house, like mm-hmm. she's like holding him and letting him cry. Like I mean, she's one of the few characters in the yeah. entire film that lets him have any emotional release, and I don't think that can be understated how like that important that is. As like she just has a very motherly loving presence when you're around her that is just i i think would be like a nice hang yeah i think that seems very important to see them as you know guardians for patrick moving forward but um i think they also, and just, also like, guardians I, for I could definitely have a drink with them i bet you they have a great conversation i bet you they both can throw down a couple of beers that'd be nice um okay here's my second option my only other option. okay go um pat's friends good guys I think so. Like, uh, I mean, they're kind of like doofus bro hockey player guys. One, they're in the band. Two, they have nerdy Star Trek conversations. But they're also just like are out for him. They talk to like the hockey coach. Who's, like he's going through shit, and they immediately skate up to him and, and give him a hug. So they have the friendship loyalty too. But I think they're also 
if they grow up, I think they'll be just like Georges. They're little Georges. They're the kind of great male friendships you want to develop as a teenager where they're like, yeah, they will be they will be loving and kind in the moments where you really need them. But then in the moments where you're just hanging out, they will make fun of you for liking Star Trek and call you a fucking idiot. <laughs> like that's yeah. kind of like one of those quality friendships you kind of develop in life where they're like super loyal to you. You're loyal to them, but also they'll call you a fucking idiot if they think you're a fucking idiot. Um, but you they're know, not above emotions and sentimentality. They're still no. They don't know, reject him when he's really it's hard for a teenage boy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would also yeah. like to throw out. I feel like Steven Henderson, Lee's boss, is probably a pretty decent hang. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. You only need to see him outside of the, of the authority figure boss aspect, but I think we're just basing it on him in general. The actor is <laughs> a good hang. Yeah, uh, what about um, Kyle Chandler? Is Kyle Chandler a good hang? I think he's a good hang. I worry, just like Lee, about how much he dealt with a little too much of the alcoholism. I think their their drinking problem might be a little too far. I don't know if they have control. This that's is fair. where I worry. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I, I thought about that during the movie. Like, is he a good head? He seems like a fun guy, but he might have a problem. I don't know. He, I think Lee has a problem. I don't know if he had a problem. I think it's he's just at the center of the story, but he's like alongside with them during. He's almost like he's a functioning alcoholic. Lee becomes almost a not functioning alcoholic. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I feel like Lucas has to just be a fun hang. No, Maybe. he's an asshole. <laughs> he's a beast. the same age as him. Uh, yeah, that's fair. I, which I told you, he had too much um, confidence in his sexuality that I would always felt he was a dick. I think you're. I think you mean to say sexual prowess, not sexuality. That's the same um, thing. No, because sexuality is a, like having faith in your sexuality means that you understand where you lie on the spectrum versus sexual prowess means how you deal as a sexual being and he knows he is a Let's sexual fiend patrick thinks he's he is a, a dick slinging player alpha yeah. <laughs> that's his sexuality he's too confident in it that's fair that's fair he'd probably be an asshole all right so i think i think i'm gonna go with you and i'm gonna say i think that george is the best thing george is the best I think he's George and, think wife. George and his wife. Yes. I don't know who is his. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what his wife's name is. I don't know if she's. I always credited. get along with women better anyway. So me and her would have been cool. Yeah, she just seems like like just a genuinely really nice person. Um, yeah. Um, do you want to talk about worst hang? Because I feel like there's some contention here. No, I mean Casey um, Affleck is meant to be the worst hang. Uh, think, Let's be he, real. He either wants to get Casey fight Affleck. with you. Casey Affleck or, is not close to the worst hang in this film. Okay. Gretchen I would much rather hang with Casey Affleck than several other characters. Gretchen Moore and Matthew Broderick are the worst hang. That's the worst hang. That, did, like, that dinner would be awkward. They are acting like real humans on purpose. No, they're robots. They're robots like robot. performing like they are kind humans. Also, on the, the opposite side of um, Patrick's friends, uh, Sylvie and Sandy, his girlfriends, Terrible hanks. Like, I don't think we're supposed to... It all seemed that great. Um, The woman that said, I don't want to see Patrick anymore, she probably started the Capitol. That's my pick. Wait, which is the one that said Patrick? The, the one who was trying to get a job at the thing, and she comes to the boss and says, I don't want to see him around here anymore. She's a bad hank. She's you know, hilarious. In fact, I was watching this movie and I had that. That was the exact <laughs> thought in my head. Was, you know, was... 
she's definitely a narc and somebody yeah, yeah, yeah. She seems like a terrible. Girl. Fun fact: that lady, uh, Erica McDermott, also is uh, one of the Eklund sisters in the fighter. Yeah, whatever assholes were doing cocaine at Casey Affleck's house, bad hag. That's taking it too far. You don't see them. He just talks about them in the in the investigation. He's like, "Oh, I got a little carried away. Some guys were doing coke in the middle of this ping pong table in the basement of the house. What, where do you think you're living at?" That does that's bad a, hangs. That is a really crazy. That is a really crazy scene in terms of like his just honesty to be like, yeah, we were drinking and doing like a bunch of drugs in this basement after this massive fire happened. Like he's in this like weird headspace where like he doesn't even understand how bad that sounds from a criminal liability standpoint to just totally yeah. throw all that information out there. I mean, yeah, all the Go guys ahead. at by the ping pong table that like cheer once Michelle Williams tells them to shut the fuck up and act like she's being an asshole. They're all assholes. Honestly, Back Casey Affleck might have been a worse hang before fire than after fire. Yeah, because he had an alcohol issue. <laughs> he had a drinking issue. He was just like an idiot. He was like a drunk idiot all the time. Um, yeah. Let's do some final thoughts. Zach, any final thoughts? What's your, pit, what's your um, pitch on people who say that this movie is too sad? Um, that's people who don't want to deal with real emotions. They're the Midwesterns that want to uh, not come face to face. I think this movie is important to, you know, grow your emotional intelligence, you know, to understand how to deal with pain and how to deal with grief. And it's not a hard watch because these characters are real and they're lovable and they're warm and they feel like family. And that, that goes a long way and making you able to connect to the film. Yeah, I would agree. Emotionally intelligent. You find film. it strangely really rewatchable. This is the it's, third time I watch it. It is really, right? It's really yes. enjoyable. And it really flies by, too, for a film that is on some darker source material. Uh, also, sneaky, really, really fun. Um, there's some really funny scenes in this film that I'm not going to lie, I laughed out loud in like, several scenes in this film because there's just uh, like a ridiculousness and a dark humor to them that I find very enjoyable. Um, yeah, I feel like this. Every time I watch this movie, I'm like, I need to watch more Kenneth Lonergan. And I don't think there's a lot of Kenneth Lonergan that exists in the world, but um, he's just one of these people. I'm like, please do more movies. Um, which is kind of how I feel about like most of the people in this cast. I guess outside of like Hedges has done a lot recently, but um, the rest of them, I'm just like, yeah, I'd like to see more of you. Yeah, I guess he's only yeah. done three movies. Yeah, Kenneth Lonergan, please do another movie. You're really well, great. he had such a hard time with Margaret, which kind of slowed him down for a little bit. I know, but you did Lancers by the Sea. You got like nine He's also billion... one of the most acclaimed playwrights of this generation, and he consistently has plays going to Broadway. This or off-Broadway. So, yeah. yeah he's, so he's, he's not the... fully in this film career. He has a multi-layered career. Yeah, I would... Um... But yes, please make more movies because you're really talented. And um, if you do more movies with Casey Affleck, I will be very happy to watch them because I think Affleck really digs your kind of your vibe. He's really good at it. Yeah, this is a great movie. I love it. One of the best top five movies, top three movies of the 2010s. That I'm getting that good. It's like, it's like, I'm not going to rank it. I really like it. Yeah, that's fair. All right, folks. Um, thank you for listening to us. Talking about uh, Manchester by the Sea, a wonderful film uh, for such a long time. Uh, next week, we'll be back with the ultimate Lucas and Zach movie. Our, our the movie that, birthday present. The, mo the movie that defines our friendship. The <laughs> movie that the two of us are unabashedly super fans of. 
The movie that is probably why we started a podcast is knowing that someday we can talk about it together. Just trying to fit it into any marathon we can. This is valid. It's Paddington 2 time, baby. We're rocking up. We Paddington two. Absolutely. Let's yeah. get ready for some nice core cinema, cinema and make the world right again. We are also going to review Paddington 3 um, right after. We're just going to make up what we think happens in Paddington 3. We're going to do a whole fake script read. We're actually going okay. to do a script read where Zach will read narrator and I will read in different voices wearing different costumes every <laughs> single other character throughout the film. Um, we will see you next week, folks. Have a good evening. Peace out. Zach, you got songs or no? Manchester. Man, Manchester <laughs> by the sea. <laughs> <laughs>